Hi, and welcome to our second season of Climate Tracker Weekly. Yes, we reached our second season and it was not due to popular demand, but we will have some good stuff for you this year anyway. We're going to talk to a bunch of new fellows from around the world, young climate journalists, giving you the news from their front lines each week. And in our first week, Obviously, we couldn't resist an interview with anyone but our American correspondent, Ileana Cohen, who shared what she expects from a Biden presidency and how that shift might impact climate reporting across the United States. But before we go to that interview, let's get a quick roundup of the climate news from around the world. Of course, the biggest story of the week was President Joe Biden, who, in his first day in office, put the US back into the Paris Agreement, cancelled the Keystone XL pipeline, and issued a demand that all federal agencies review their work against climate science targets and realign them. I certainly hope, for one, that the military was included in that because that has a massive carbon budget. Also in news, a study by 17 of the world's leading earth scientists and ecologists published in the journal Frontiers in Conservation Science has stated that even the experts aren't fully coming to grips with how bleak the earth's future looks. The study titled Underestimating the Challenges of Avoiding a Ghastly Future reviewed more than 150 research papers to assess the state of the natural world and it's not looking good. The authors recommend that we fully abolish the idea of perpetual economic growth, introduce carbon pricing, and rein in corporate lobbyists. Another piece of research was conducted by Care International and has caught 25 different donor countries basically lying about how much money they give for climate adaptation. The study looked at adaptation financing across 112 projects between 2013 and 2017. And it found at least 25 countries have been counting loans and indirect investments as climate adaptation wrongly. Japan was the worst offender, with Care International claiming they overcounted about $1.3 billion of climate adaptation finance during that four-year period. And then the World Bank came in special place with uh, over-reporting of an acclaimed $832 million. In Indonesia, you might have heard about the horrible flooding last week in southern Borneo. In the Indonesian south of the island, a state known as southern Kalimantan, 21 people died and more than 256,000 people have been impacted in what the country's president has called the worst regional flooding in 50 years. The area has been dramatically changed over the last decade by mass deforestation caused by mining and gigantic palm oil plantations. And a story by former climate tracker and now Mongabay reporter Hans Nicholas Jong argues that the government's own data highlights that while rainfall was nine times more than normal, it wouldn't have caused such bad flooding if the forests hadn't been destroyed. And our final story of the week is about airlines. Now, don't put your hopes in airline companies to deal with their emissions because a recent deal by the UN's International Civil Aviation Organization to stop the sector's greenhouse gas emissions has basically agreed to let airlines fly as much as they want and just buy carbon offsets uh, up until about 2027. That's in spite of a heated scientific debate about how the hell we're going to be able to plant enough trees to accommodate all these carbon credits around the world. According to an article by Deutsche Welle, climate activists and some researchers say the scheme is worthless. And Stay Grounded co-founder Magdalena Hawisa even said that the negotiating body is, quote, a wreck that is too broken to fix. That's it for the week's headlines. And now to our interview with Ileana Cohen. All right. Welcome to our podcast. How are you? I'm well. Um, good day in the United States and for the world and the planet and all that with Joe Biden as president. Um, and it's my first time sort of being an official podcast guest for a sustained period of time. So that's exciting. For some reason, I instinctually feel like laughing, which is what I do when I'm nervous, but I'm trying to train. So instead, I'm, I'm just divulging that which is probably worse yeah now you're kind of a target i i want to i want you to laugh now um as as a result of knowing that but welcome to our podcast and 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 you're right we're recording this actually a couple of hours after joe biden has been officially inaugurated obviously uh former president uh donald trumpenstein 
didn't attend the the ceremony. He he got on a jet um, or a helicopter and went somewhere to go cry. Um, but Joe Biden was inaugurated regardless. Um, and and now, how do you feel? I feel relieved um, is the first word that comes to mind. Relieved that you know there's a baseline of security and the state of American democracy now. Um, apparently, that wasn't a baseline before. Uh, which was a deeply unpleasant surprise. Um, although I, I don't know how surprising it really was, I suppose, um, in hindsight. But I also feel, I feel nervous and excited. Um, nervous in the sense that there is just so much to be done, um, particularly around the overlapping crises of coronavirus, um, climate change, and systemic racism in this country. Um, but excited insofar as I think that Joe Biden has already been showing from day one that he is there to make systemic changes. I think he's surrounding himself with a lot of people who are going to be pushing for systemic change. And this is a really, really unique moment for the United States to actually position itself um, as a global leader on crises from which it has long fled, um, not just in the last four years, but just more atrociously so in these last four years. Absolutely. And, and Ilana, you are both a young journalist, a, a student, and a, an activist. And we might try to dive into all three of those kind of identities uh, in the next kind of conversation that we're having. But I'm just uh, highlighting that because as a young person who's you know, actively involved in these different areas of American life, what do you think is, is going to be the shift for you in the next kind of couple of years, as opposed to the last four years, in which obviously life as an activist, as a journalist, might, might have felt a little bit different? Yeah, I think these last four years, at least for me, and I imagine for a lot of other people, um, were really characterized by a sense of uh, defensiveness. Like a, it was a very reactionary, both in terms of at least my writing and reporting and my organizing. There was always this kind of need to, you know, hold the federal government, um, the Trump White House accountable for all of the destruction that it was perpetrating, whether it be in the area of climate or otherwise. Um, and, and to sort of rally for around just kind of maintaining degrees of sanity. In, in the biggest areas of US public policy, um, you know, especially around immigration um, and racial equality. And now with Biden as president, I think there is this really incredible opportunity to just kind of have a, an entirely new energy around organizing and reporting and writing um, insofar as that there's sort of a forward looking approach now. Like I kind of finally feel like there is real potential to you know, protest and not just like yell into a void, like there is a clear target, um, the Biden White House, um, that needs to be held accountable for making real systemic change for implementing policies that were unimaginable over these last four years, um, because <laughs> we were so preoccupied with just trying to stave off um, measures that decimated very basic human rights. Okay, I, I really want to get into that kind of uh opportunity for activism slash kind of the challenges of, of kind of, you know, what Biden is calling trying to unify America and, and, and obviously not wanting to kind of be as partisan as his predecessor. But just for the kind of those, particularly outside of the US, although I think we all now pretty much feel American, at least in our news consumption for the last couple of months, what happens in the next 100 days? What happens next? for the kind of the environmental policy of the United States? Oh, so much. <laughs> I, well, I hope so much. Um, I guess I think it's first important to note that, you know, the all crises are pressing right now, but fundamentally for the U.S. to grapple with the climate crisis, it's going to have to grapple with the COVID crisis um, because, wowza, we've just been doing so, so, so poorly. Um, you know, it's crazy to see a country like the U.S., which has so many resources in comparison to so many other countries struggling so wildly with COVID. Um, but it is in large part, I think, a product of a total lack of federal leadership and really an enabling from the federal level over the last year under President Trump of conspiracy theorists, COVID deniers who uncoincidentally are also often climate deniers. Um, 
And I think, you know, there, there are so many clear parallels between the COVID-19 crisis and the climate crisis that in many ways dealing with the, the imminent public health emergency of COVID in the United States also is going to necessarily mean dealing with the climate crisis, um, especially when it comes, for instance, to putting economic recovery measures in place and just granting people basic economic relief. And then I also think there's, you know, the idea of building up the nation's public health infrastructure and created creating a really coordinated national response to the COVID crisis um, is going to create infrastructure that is is going to be able to deal with the increasing public health emergency that ultimately is climate change. Um, even just putting aside the basic environmental policies, I think that's actually a hugely important measure in terms of climate in the US going forward. And then of course, on like the more environmental side, like Biden has such an incredibly bold climate agenda, um, boldest of any other US president in history. Um, and so if he's really gonna start delivering on it in these next hundred days, I mean, he has, he has cabinet picks who are very climate progressive, um, which is promising. He has now a Democratic majority, although slim, he has one um, in Congress. So that's incredibly exciting. I think there's an incredible amount of potential for him to really just get to work as he's already been doing from day one, starting with the canceling of the Keystone XL pipeline. I remember when Obama got into power, he, he had this incredible agenda of things that he wanted to do. And then obviously for a number of reasons, many of things, those things didn't get done. Um, is what Biden is promising to take on simply too much? Okay, I have two part answer to this. <laughs> the first of which is just a simple no. I mean, I think the political moment is very, very different now than it was a decade. I think that um, Biden also is coming into office with a very clear electoral mandate for action on COVID-19, climate change, and systemic racism. He knows that. Um, he said it over and over and over again. And I think the people he's surrounding himself with, and no doubt the organizers who you know were fighting for those causes during the 2020 election are going to make sure that he sticks with it. I mean, oh my God, I hope this man has time for like a nap and a cup of joe at some point. Um, like yeah, that pun but honestly like he, I think he he yeah, there's so much potential for the Biden presidency to really act on all of these crises I don't think it's too much I think Biden is coming into office with the clear intention of making real real lasting change but on the other hand you know I don't think that's a reason for activists or journalists to rest on their laurels um I think that part of the reason I feel hopeful that Biden can achieve so much change is because I feel like grassroots groups are so invigorated right now. I think that the um, racial justice protests last summer in the United States were really a testament to how well organized people are and, and how much um, the intersections of structural inequalities and injustices, especially with the climate crisis, are at the forefront of people's consciousness um, in a way that they just weren't a decade ago. And in, to some extent, horrific as it's been to see, um, the surge of denial that's really come to a head under the Trump presidency has, I think, also inspired a lot more fervor among progressive organizers to get their shit together and get out there and play the inside game as well as the outside game, meaning making sure they have their allies on the Biden team, um, which they do. There are a lot of really wonderful people who Biden has put on his team who are very clearly aligned with the goals of the broader racial justice and climate movements, and especially the youth-led climate movement. All right, well, maybe a slightly more difficult question. How does Biden do that while not freaking out the 70 million Americans who obviously didn't think that he should have a mandate to take those actions? My God, I wish I had an answer for that. <laughs> I think the first thing that comes to mind for me though is the question of why, why does that matter? Um, you know, freaking out. I think Trump has done really, really, really lasting damage in some ways um, to a lot of Americans' confidence in their federal government. At the same time, you know, I, I don't interpret Biden's promise of being a president for all Americans as meaning that he's going to do things that will necessarily be instantly popular with all Americans or not freak any Americans out. At the end of the day, I think 
you know, that the president has a, a basic duty to ensure that Americans have um, a livable planet, uh, a future that is, is better for their children and for their grandchildren to ensure that, you know, massive disparities in health outcomes um, along the lines of socioeconomic status and race and gender are alleviated um, and, and to ensure that people have access to um, equal education. And, and all of those things, you know, I think are, are good for all Americans, whether or not they are advocated by all Americans. Um, and so ultimately, you know, can he achieve that without freaking a lot of Americans out? I don't know. Um, but to some extent, I don't think it matters. I also think what is unique about Biden is that unless something wild is happening that a lot of us are unaware of, he's probably not going to run for a second term. Um, he's, he's pretty dang old. Uh, and so that means at the end of the day that either he's going to be setting up Kamala Harris to run or there's going to be a new uh, Democrat, you know, coming up in the works. And I'm sure lots of people are already feeling out their presidential funds right now as I say this. But that also, I think, alleviates some of the pressure on Biden um, to feel the sort of need to do things in a way that play to public popularity. Um, because for him, it, it's the long game only in the sense that he's trying to put together a more, a more sustainable country for whoever comes next. It's not the long game for his political career. Um, this is the, the pinnacle of that um, and really the end in many ways. Yeah, and I think I read today that he has been a a member of the U.S. government as as kind of a, an elected member under eight different presidents, which means that, you know, he's seen a couple of people try different things and, and he's seen a couple of different policy approaches in his day. So I feel like if anyone's got an understanding of how you might approach tackling multiple different things at once, he, he probably has a few lessons he's learned in, in a few years. But uh, I just kind of wonder if if all of the excitement and fervor is only setting up a lot of people to be disappointed. Um, I remember kind of the feeling of, you know, Obama engaged this incredible broad movement across America about this kind of publicly led, you know, democratic change possibilities. And then kind of many people felt that when he was in power, he didn't maintain that momentum and that movement and, and, and address all of these things that were effectively promised. And, and I think what you said about, you know, being a different political moment is very, very true. I remember, you know, on the climate side, uh, a lot of that type of energy happened around Copenhagen in 2009, but there wasn't that political context that made sense so that when Obama flew into Copenhagen, you know, a couple of days after, like a couple of months after his inauguration, um, he, he basically tried to like, you know, uh, all right, this is how it's going to happen. Um, and, and it, and it didn't work out and people didn't like it. Um, and, and that, you know, put the climate conversation globally back a couple of years. Um, but it, it might have been in a position that it never realistically was. So it might have been the case, I think reflectively, that many NGOs and media pretended that the political moment was better than it actually was at the time. And, and then kind of later on, obviously around Paris, you had a very different political moment. You had a very different set of circumstances. And you had a US president who didn't have a second term hopefulness that was just ready to say, yep, let's do this. Um, and, and obviously I think that you've highlighted that this is a very different moment. So that's, I think what I'm going to take away from this conversation, you know, it is an opportunity that hasn't existed in a long time on a lot of these different issues. Um, you obviously have a, a social momentum on many of them. You have a political momentum on some others that, that previously hadn't existed. And you have, you know, potentially a Republican party looking to rebuild itself for a couple of years. So how they go about rebuilding themselves might mean that they're focused a little bit more on that process rather than on an interventionary kind of trying to stop Joe Biden do things. Um, and I, I would probably think that if I was a Republican party member right now, I'd be kind of letting Joe Biden do things and so I could build up what I say is the horrible things that Joe Biden has done to America and look at these crazy examples of socialism that I can then feed into my base in two years for the primaries as well. So I think it might be advantageous to Republicans even to let Joe Biden do what he wants to do, which means that on an environmental perspective, you might have an incredible opportunity. But what do you think about that idea that in the, the senatorial races in two years time, 
in the presidential races in four years' time, you know, the Republicans are going to be highlighting anything that Joe Biden changes and says, look, that's socialism. I think it's an interesting question for two reasons. One is that I think there's still really no clear sense, probably including among Republican elected officials themselves, of where the Republican Party is going or has to go. I think on the one hand, there's very clearly this populist, right-wing, pro-Trump faction. Um, But the reality is also that that faction lost big (laughs) in this election. They lost in the presidential election and in the Georgia Senate runoffs. Um, And also that there are a lot of Republicans, especially young Republicans who are expressing growing concerns about the climate crisis. Um, And for so long, you know, the GOP has put itself on, on the opposite side of climate action. And I think to some extent, this election showed that that is not to their advantage. Um, And also, you know, increasingly, I think we're seeing the sort of, if we can even still call them this, I guess, more moderate Republicans wanting to work with Biden. Mitch McConnell is kind of changing his tune. Um, So I think the question is still out there of, of whether or not, you know, the mainstays of the Republican Party are going to decide that moving forward, there is like a, a real kind of like moderate wing of their party that can once again sort of rise up um, or whether, you know, they're going to splinter off and that pro-Trump faction is going to be vying for more power. So I think that's still out there. I think the second thing, um, which is related, is just that Overall, Americans want climate action. You know, like we, we as, a, as a whole group overwhelmingly believe in human cause, climate change. Um, people don't think their government is doing enough to deal with climate change. And not everyone agrees on exactly what the climate solutions are, but there are plenty that have a lot of bipartisan support, like investing more in renewables. Um, and so to the extent that that's true, I think that anything that Biden does um, in in some areas of climate policy um, is going to be something that Republicans want their names on and and maybe even using to brand themselves in two years in the midterms or in four years in the next presidential race. Certainly kind of a couple of interesting years ahead. And and I, I fully share your kind of relief and excitement today. But I, I probably kind of can't even contemplate what it feels like to be as an American kind of having these emotions today. So I hope you have a, a pretty brilliant day. Um, and, and thank you for sharing some of that with us. I, I want to dive into, you know, some of those identities you you highlighted. Um, and, and actually, the first identity I want to jump into is your name, because I, I, I'm not someone who knows so much about um, kind of everyone's names, but I feel like I've heard the name Cohen, like almost every time I look at someone who's doing amazing things in the world, whether it's Leonard or Sasha Baron or the brothers who make movies. Um, like, I, I feel like it's an incredibly like talented name. Is there like, is that kind of a weird, you know, I've got three names that I can drop off and that's like a weird fetish for myself and, and that's not actually a real thing? Or is is Cohen just kind of an incredibly talented name that, that you have obviously inherited? As far as I know, my heritage does not include any of the Cohens you listed. Um, so I can't I say. say I have the, the famous Cohen namesake, but I will say, you know, I think there are a lot of, a lot of Cohens in the world. It's a classic Jewish last name. Um, yeah, there's, so I'm from New York city and, um, I remember there always used to be these ads on the subway when I was a kid for Cohen's fashion optical, which is, I think like a very, a somewhat popular glasses, uh, making chain. And every time I, I went to school, all the kids would ask me like, are your parents the, the Cohen's who are in charge of Cohen's fashion optical? And I was like, no, this is just a random glasses company. But anyway, that was one of my best New York city experiences. Like every time I went to the subway, I was like, that's me. Like, that's my last <laughs> name. It wasn't really though. I have nothing to do with glasses making. Um, but yeah, no Cohen means priest. Um, my first name is Alana, which means Oak tree. So you know, maybe some sort of weird fate thing where I was meant to be involved in climate change activism or writing because priest of oak trees, I guess. I'm not really sure. Yeah, um, you're like the tree shaman. I like that. I'm going to take that. 
I wish I had like gotten a Twitter handle that was like tree shaman. It's a lot cooler than what I have now. <laughs> is it now Oak Tree Priest? No, it's it's so much worse. It's Alana Bana, which is a nickname that I was genuinely given when I was 13 by a friend who created my Instagram for me. And it just kind of stuck. Fair enough. Fair enough. You're also a journalist um, and, and you're one of our kind of fellows for the next couple of months. How did you get into journalism and, 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 and why? Honestly, I think it started when I was around six. Um, my mom actually was a journalist. And I just remember that the idea of being a reporter, of getting out there and sort of uncovering the truth was, for whatever reason at that age, the most exciting thing to me. Um, my mom got me a little reporter's notepad and I started carrying it around our house, um, trying to track down all of my family members. I don't know why I was under the preconception that there was anything I didn't know about them that I could discover by sort of trying to, to spy on them when they were like reading books in the living room um, or going onto their laptops in their bedrooms. But I, I did have this preconception for whatever reason. So for a while, I stalked around my family members. I took very detailed notes of their activities. Um, and then one night, I believe at dinner or something, I tried to present my findings um, and they were thoroughly <laughs> unimpressed. Actually, they were a little ticked off that I had been paying so much attention to them over the last week. But for me, it was sort of like the beginnings of, of trying to understand, you know, what it was to, to sleuth things out and to, to be someone who was sort of like in the know. Um, and I think that's carried through to me today in terms of why climate journalism as opposed to any journalism um, I just genuinely think that there is no bigger story than the climate crisis um, in this day and age. I mean, it, it's going to impact all of us. It's already impacting all of us. And especially as a young person, the climate crisis has already already like been this kind of massive presence in my life. I think just growing up, um, watching sort of increasing coverage of climate catastrophe, experiencing Hurricane Sandy in New York, which was quite devastating here. And then really understanding how those climate catastrophes kind of just brought to light um, structural inequalities and injustices that, that were already existing um, all around me, but that weren't quite as palpable. Like that for me told me like the story here is so much bigger than just like, you know, this yeah, the bigger than climate change, which is weird to say, bigger than this like global human cause phenomenon. Um, there's really the story at, at its heart of injustice and of what it means to sort of care for one another as an as a necessarily interconnected society at both like the local level and the global level um and yeah so i that was a very convoluted way of answering your question but i no, guess it was, a, it was a great way like at first i was imagining you kind of like writing these little stories of like Iliana and the mystery of the missing milk and you're like I saw my dad drinking it and he denied it and like you know and then kind of it worked into this beautiful narrative of 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 kind of why you're focused on climate change in in, in a kind of a holistic way which I think is now you know the the ask of of many kind of environmental organizations and reporters that you can't continue just writing about things in a disconnected way. It needs to be an interconnected understanding of, of you know, social inequalities, of, of government mismanagement, of risk, of, of kind of responsibility, and, and that kind of a, a hurricane, like you were saying, or a, you know, a, a kind of a, a flooding event. It, you can't just simply write about it as if it's a, a kind of, you know, uh, two dots and, and, and connect the dots. You have to kind of look at the broader system of why did this happen? Why did it affect certain people? Why did it kind of, uh, wh why wasn't it averted? And, and, and what were the kind of processes that could have been put in place and things like that? And I think it's a, it's a brilliant story to dive into and tell, but obviously it's, it's a big, broad story. So, so kind of what are you working on at the moment? And, and what is the kind of story that you want to tell in the next couple of months? Well, at the moment, I've been talking to a lot of youth climate activists um, and trying to gauge what their expectations are for the Biden presidency um, and, and what that will mean, both in terms of domestic and international climate policy. I, I think um, rightly youth climate activists feel that they put a lot into the election of, of Biden. Um, I mean, Sunrise Movement 
was such a big part really of getting young people and progressives behind Biden in the 2020 election. They played a huge, huge role in the Georgia Senate runoffs. Um, and now I think, you know, it really, it really waits to be seen whether or not Biden is going to deliver on the bold climate agenda. He's more broadly promised the American people, but also beyond that, actually engage with the youth climate movement in a constructive and sustained way. Um, and so I've been talking to a lot of youth climate activists about what sort of what models are out there for a more formal inclusion of a youth climate voice in the Biden White House and whether or not they think that that's something, you know, Biden would move on, which members of his team might be amenable to that. Um, but and another thing I also want to add, because I think this is important, it goes back a little to our, what we were speaking about before, is um, for me, activism and journalism are very interconnected. And I know that that is a controversial thing to say. Um, I've worked in both spaces in isolation, and I've ultimately come to the conclusion that just for me personally, like if you're someone who cares about the climate crisis, there's always this kind of bias towards climate action in your writing. And that's not to say that you should be prescribing what exactly that action is. But like, of course, if you understand the science and you understand fundamentally the connection of the climate crisis to social justice issues, then you should have a bias towards creating a more just and sustainable future. Um, and that sort of naturally leads towards wanting to organize around it in one way or another. So um, yeah, I mean, I think following and being a part of the the climate broader climate movement in whatever way shape or form that takes for people like that's sort of also the most interesting story out there like we were talking earlier about um you know whether or not this is too much provided to do right now and and sort of people's disappointments during the obama years i think like a key lesson from the obama years is that like activists can never just sit it out like reporters can never just sit it out um like a moment of prime opportunity for action on the climate crisis, like only gets realized if there is this firestorm of journalists there to really ensure that uh, elected officials are delivering on their promises. And also this like firestorm of activists who are pushing for more and more and more and more because it's never going to be enough. Like this crisis is too big. <laughs> There's too much wrapped up in the idea of um, decarbonizing in a way that is equitable and socially just. Um, and to that extent, you know, organizing has never been more important. And the questions of like, who's organizing, who, whose voices are not being heard in the organizing process, like those are all things that journalists need to pay attention to. I want to dive into that split identity a little bit of, of, of what you were saying about being a journalist and an activist and, and how you see it as a, a kind of an important, you know, connection there. It, it almost reminds me of, uh, conversations around representation in, in journalism as well. Um, should there be more journalists who, who look and are of a certain type of, of, of character, of a certain type of economic class, racial class, that can report on those issues from a very different perspective, um, other than this kind of outsider looking in? And I wonder if, if that's something that you feel uh, similarly or about the kind of climate issues that, you know, you kind of being somewhat of an insider on that story is actually a, a useful element for your reporting. Yeah, I think it's an invaluable element for my reporting um, in two respects. I mean, one, I think I have a really unique grasp on the climate movement and on the youth climate movement in particular that I just wouldn't have, um, if not for my experiences as an organizer. But two, I think that I actually approach journalism in, in some fundamentally different ways from a lot of other folks I've encountered um, because of my activist experience. Like for me, the process of reporting and telling a story is also the process of experimenting with empathy and like learning how to build relationships with people um, who are key to the story that you're telling. And I think that that can sometimes um, be seen as uh, operating in a way that doesn't actually have a sort of like conventional detachment that that people like say journalists should have. But I actually think it's really, really important to be compassionate with one's sources and to understand that at the end of the day, like when you're interviewing subjects for a piece, like those those subjects are are humans. They're complex humans, um, and getting to understand them as as individuals and not just as sort of like characters playing certain roles in your stories is 
one of the most important things I think you can do for yourself and to really get a deeper perspective on what you're writing about. Um, and I learned that kind of empathy and really like the ways to connect with people more deeply from my experiences as an activist entirely. Um, I mean, I think being an organizer, like you have to know how to be able to like talk to anyone and everyone at all times and like how to be there on a ground level and how to sort of just carry yourself with a humility and an open-mindedness that doesn't always necessarily um, come first and foremost to some of more conventional newsrooms. Um, but I'll also just add that I think transparency is really important. Like when I am an activist and I am also a journalist, like I, I say that, you know, like I, I don't write about, I don't pretend to be neutral about things um, which I am not neutral. I'm not gonna write a story as like a distance reporter on something that I am taking like a really proactive stance on, like for example, divestment. I'm a divestment activist. I'm not gonna like report on divestment activism or the divestment movement. I may write about it in like the context of an editorial or an explicitly opinionated piece. Um, but that's where sort of like the separation comes into play. And I think those distinctions are really important because I think a lot of times people just like lump together all climate activism. Uh, it, that doesn't really make sense. Like, as we were saying before, the crisis is so big, like different types of cli climate activism are very, very distinct from one another. And I think it's important to recognize and appreciate those distinctions so that we can also recognize and appreciate the different and intersecting roles people can play in what is really a broader struggle for, you know, a habitable planet for today's young people and future generations. Does that positionality make some stories hard or even impossible to tell them? I definitely have had the experience a lot of times when I was purely a reporter um, last year and, and not organizing um, where I felt very conflicted um, in sort of portraying actors that I intuitively thought were responsible for different climate crises. I guess like, for the purpose of being totally transparent, you know, like I think fossil fuel companies, like I, I'm a divestment activist and I, I reported several stories where, you know, they weren't necessarily directly looking at any one company or the other, but just like these, this general like paradigm of fossil fuel companies sort of taking advantage of um, economically under-resourced and vulnerable communities came up. And it was really, really hard to sort of navigate those pieces um, as a reporter, not as someone who is like in that role in an activist space or, or an opinion writer. Um, but like kind of have in the back of my head the sense, especially from the people I was talking to, that there were just like such, such clear and really horrific like power imbalances between sort of these companies and like the communities with which they were in relation. Um, when I was reporting about sort of like broader environmental issues in, the, in those community spaces. And it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. I think that's part of the reason, to be honest, that like it was it's not a sustainable role for me to be a reporter who is not also an activist and to, for my own sanity, like draw clearer lines about what I can and want to report on and then what I can and want to be explicitly opinionated about. Um, I also think it's hard just as like someone who cares a lot about getting to know other people to like feel sort of the emotional weight. And I know a lot of journalist experiences of like having interviews with folks who are experiencing just like gross environmental injustices and then not have like the intuition after of like, oh my God, I need to get involved. Like, or like, oh my God, like how do I uplift what you're doing to like stop this um, for grassroots organizers and like putting the like hold on that <laughs> when I need to in my like reporterly duties um, is difficult for me as someone who has the sort of like instinct to like, rally and like join the troops um and get out there but it's also something I've like come to appreciate because I, I think that you know I, I believe in the power of journalism to storytell in a way that is fundamentally different from activism even though I think they often complement one another and I think there are very deliberate reasons uh to take on one position over the other to deal with certain issues um under the broader umbrella of combating climate change so a lot of people say that the biggest challenge of journalism in the 21st century is this idea of fake news and, and confronting kind of wholly false stories. But I think that that kind of comes very close to the idea of 
the reality that we are realizing that there isn't a singular story on anything. You know, we have gone from the 7 p.m. nightly news bulletin where there is a singular story and there's one channel and one newspaper that tells a singular story. And particularly, I think a lot of the, the rise in more diverse newsrooms has led to the realization that there are so many different stories and perspectives on at, at any given moment on, on any given scene. Um, I mean, I think that kind of, the incredible response to the capital riots and and the kind of you know the attempted assassinations um, by a, a bunch of people who got inspired by the internet. Um, I, I saw so many different responses to that, and I think there are so many stories. Whether it was you know African American NBA players saying you know quite blatantly, this is evidence of two Americas. You know, I think that would be a a traditional like traditionally not considered the story. Like the story is these people raiding. It's not a story about kind of comparing it to other protests. But I think with the diversity of news, we are now realizing that there are so many different stories and perspectives to kind of shape a story. So I think that, you know, while you have this idea of fake news being such a hard thing to combat, you also have this realization that we need to tell more diverse stories and we, we need to include more diverse perspectives regardless of what the story is, you know? And, and I think that those two are very hard to deal with at the same time. Like the re realization that there are multiple ways of looking at something and multiple ways that many different publications are reporting on things, but also there is this fake news element. So, you know, and they kind of, you can play off each other really easily. But I think what you're, you're describing is, is really interesting around the, the idea of trying to tell the story about something and, and trying to be that traditionally kind of impartial reporter who apparently doesn't have a range of emotions and doesn't feel like something should be done about something that they reported on, um, which I think is kind of like has always been a, an interesting position as a journalist that maybe sometimes people tried to cover up and maybe other people tried to highlight as, as really important. And, and I think, you know, even Christine Amanpour has, has done a really interesting CNN series where she goes back to visit old stories that she reported on as an early journalist and talk to the people that she emotionally and, and spiritually feels connected to as, as a human being. And I think that that was a beautiful unveiling of that kind of like, you know, I'm a neutral reporter and, and I just report on what happens and then move on to the next story. Um, so I think it's a really interesting time to be a, a journalist, particularly a young journalist, as all of these changes are happening. Um, do you feel like there's now more opportunities as a result? Or do you feel like maybe, you know, the broader economic climate of journalism is meaning that we have this bright moment of opportunity where newsrooms are realizing they should be more diverse and tell more stories. And, and that's not going to last very long because they'll all run out of money soon. Yeah. News media is like, Oh, so many, such a terrible state. But at the same time, as you're saying, like so many opportunities. Um, I really think that the abundance of independent platforms for journalists like Substack, um, even though I have a love-hate relationship with Substack, I'm sure many people do at this point. But I think that that's kind of incredible. I think the idea that anyone can be a journalist who wants to be a journalist because there are literally so many places to like put your writing out there um, is ultimately the best tool for diverse storytelling because I think, it makes clear where the deficiencies are oftentimes in mainstream and larger news outlets. Um, I also think like when we talk about, you know, growing opportunities for young journalists, which I think is a critical part of sort of like diversifying newsrooms and, and stories that they tell, a big thing to remember is that like the, the culture of newsrooms needs to radically change. I don't think that's happened in a lot of places, but just this idea of the sort of like neutral, emotionally detached journalist, I mean, that is sort of inherently bound up, I think, in very patriarchal and sort of like white norms as well that have long accompanied. Oh, it's definitely dudes that came up with that idea. Like there was definitely a lot of men sitting around going, we should be neutral. We shouldn't have any emotional commitment to that. Smoking their cigars, don't, don't forget that part. Like all in the same newsroom, but there's- Yeah, and then like calling their secretaries to go and get more cigars, basically. But exactly, like, and, and radically changing that dynamic is more than just like having not just old white men in the newsroom. It's also about 
fostering cultures in newsroom where people are able to ask thought-provoking questions and to challenge institutional norms, um, to have people who are examining disparities in power and privilege and how that necessarily plays into who's telling what stories, who's cited in what stories, um, what those stories and substances even are, and then the platforms mm -hmm. on which those stories are being shared and how they're being utilized and marketed. Um, all of that is really, really important. And, and I think um, at the end of the day, like, particularly at a moment, at least the United States, where media has lost so much public trust, it's really important for newsrooms to be having conversations with, with all of their staff people about like what their project is at, at a broader and more conceptual level. Mm. Um, and sort of really re-examining these things that they've taken for granted a long times and in what good journalism requires. Uh, and I think as much as possible, engaging the public really in those conversations too um, can help rebuild trust in media outlets. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that question about what is your project, I, I feel like someone like Tanahisi Coates basically started as having like a crystal clarity on what his project was and, and kind of effectively was just pushing the boundaries of how close he could get to that. Um, and, and brought in an incredible audience for the Atlantic and, and for himself, uh, brought in an incredible trust in his reporting because of the honesty of, of how he kind of located himself in those stories um, and, and how he tried to, you know, expand himself in the stories. Like he's, admitting not knowing things at times and admitting that he's learning things and he's kind of admitting complexities and challenges for himself and as a journalist and and in the story and I think it's you know there is this opportunity to kind of be very blatant about what your project is but still tell it in a nuanced way that brings readers with you um, and, and I think you're you're absolutely right there um, I, I want to finally jump on to your kind of activisty stuff because we've talked a lot about journalism um, and you are a student at Harvard University, um, which congratulations, by the way, uh, like that's, you know, as a non-American, like that's, that's one of the things like you think about America, like if you're at Harvard, you must be a genius. So you must be a genius. Um, I wouldn't say that. I also haven't gotten my degree yet, to be clear. So, well, um, congratulations on getting in um, and congratulations on, on, staying in as long as you have. What are you studying? I study philosophy and social studies. What brilliantly economic, you know, streamlines into the job market, right? Like what, what wonderful kind of, you know, pure job recruiter dream yeah. jobs. No, it gets even better. I focus on the ethics of climate change. Um, so it's like, you know, I, I have to fight off the like consulting opportunities. Like, <laughs> or are we going to get that climate ethicist in there? Your inbox must be full of, of recruiters just every day. Just like, please work for us. Like, tell us your price. Um, but, but no, I, I really hope that, that you enjoy it. And I really hope that there are some companies, you know, down the track who, who realize how valuable someone like you would be, but you're obviously heavily involved in activism on campus so just tell us a little bit about well tell me a little about i love it when people who host podcasts like imagine this like incredible audience right they're like tell us and the listeners about this it's like dude you're just having a conversation anyway tell me uh, about uh what you're studying and 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 also kind of how that links to your activism what, what are you doing yeah um okay so i guess maybe i'll, I'll explain what social studies is because i realized that for a lot of people, that sounds like something you learn in middle school um, and not a college degree. But the, the Harvard explanation of it is horrific. So I apologize. They describe it as an interdisciplinary degree in the social sciences, which is like so unhelpful. Um, but really what I, I do is I study um, moral philosophy. And for me, like the attraction there and specifically, sorry, I should say moral philosophy focused around, you know, climate change and environmental policymaking is I, I care deeply about doing things uh, from a basis of principle um, and then applying them in real life, which is sort of where the activism fits into it. I think for me, I have a very strong sense of um, duty uh, towards my immediate community, but also just like duty as I consider myself a global citizen, right? Like a member of an interconnected world. Um, and I think that uh, part of what that means is um, 
making sure that I am leveraging the privileges available to me um, to advance uh, a more just and equitable um, quality of life for all people, um, whether or not I know them. Uh, and so I think climate organizing is really an intuitive route to doing that because the climate crisis is so bound up in so many social inequalities and injustices. And for a long time when I was younger, I guess I always say feel weird saying when I was younger because I'm like 20, but like when I was more- When I was kid, only 18. <laughs> yeah, but back in the day, um, I thought that just like engaging in progressive politics was kind of this like, end all be all cure to sort of like social ills. Um, and I kind of realized over time that that, that just wasn't the case. Um, and, you know, activism is all about sort of like challenging the political establishment. And I think that doing that at places like Harvard is really an amazing opportunity um, as someone who wants to affect broader social change because, oh my God, Harvard is just like, you know, it kind of epitomizes the concentration of power. Um, there's no transparency, like, really no democratic decision-making. And, and it's this institution that has such an incredible and influential brand and namesake and really does make so many immense contributions um, to national and global research, but at the same time is completely unwilling to meaningfully engage its student, faculty, alumni, or even the broader you know, public and, and, and nearby communities um, in the work that it's doing and the project that it's undertaking. And as a result, there are often these like really blatant hypocrisies um, in, in what Harvard does, these seismic gaps between its espoused values and its veritas or truth motto um, and its practices, its investments in fossil fuels just being one example of that. Um, and so I got involved with uh, activism from very early on in my time on campus. It's actually a really, it's a sort of atrocious story. I don't know if you want me to share it, but I think it kind of, um, is representative of why journalism and activism are so intertwined for me. Oh, go ahead. Right. So um, I, I actually like when I started at Harvard, I was an aspiring reporter and I had this idea um, that I would tell a never before heard story about the death of the campus's divestment movement. So Harvard had had this like very riotous, large uh, divestment campaign um, that started at the end of 2012 and sort of fizzled out at the, in the spring of 2018, I got onto campus in the fall of 2018. So I got to campus, I had like done some climate organizing in high school and I'd like read all up on Divest Harvard and I was like, where are all these cool activists? Like, I wanna go and find them. And then like, <laughs> so I kind of got to campus, I was like, oh, kind of done. That's a bummer. It's like a really big bummer. Um, and so like the journalist in me was like, wait, like, but Harvard hasn't divested. And there were all these cool people who are like rallying for change and like, you know, the climate crisis isn't going anywhere. So like, what happened? This is the perfect campus news story. And I set out to report an article originally titled The Death of Divestment, which very soon became, as I broke the principal rule of reporting, which is don't, don't pick a side, don't get involved, reviving divestment. Surprise, surprise, I soon became a big part of reviving the divestment campaign on Harvard's campus and then subsequently learned that I was never going to report on divestment again uh, because I got a thing before and that was, that was not my jam. That was a very bad example of sort of like breaking the journalistic wall. Did you but already have an editor lined up for that story? Who's just going like, what the hell? Like, or, or, or was this something you hadn't pitched yet? Um, no, I had an editor. The story, the story published is called Reviving Divestment. I'm, I'm fully admitting in, in hindsight, I don't, I think I was the perfect person to write it because I genuinely had a wellspring of knowledge that like no one else had about the revival of the divestment okay. movement on campus. I was also the worst person to write it because I was totally biased because I very much wanted to revive it, which is what I discovered in the process of writing the article. And then like as soon as the article landed, like I just things really took off. There were a lot of people on campus who were energized, it turned out, um, around getting this campaign back together. And like in the two years since then, I think we've done really incredible work. And, and what are you focused on? So we work to, I mean, at a baseline, we're trying to get Harvard to divest from fossil fuels. What does that mean? It means getting the richest university in the world to take its $42 billion endowment out of investments in companies that are driving the climate crisis and global climate injustice. But, you know, at a broader level, um, we're trying to further the conversation around 
what fossil fuel divestment means, why it's important, and play a role in the broader movement for climate justice, um, of which divestment is a really critical component. Like if you just look at, you know, the movement for Black Lives um, and like the racial justice protests that happened last summer in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd, like those were all about divesting from policing investing in marginalized communities like divesting from injustice is this much broader idea that goes so far beyond fossil fuel divestment so far beyond just like any one campus campaign um but it's a really important demand to push for at at individual institutions because those institutions have the capacity to model um a fundamentally different kind of investment to to put their money into the kind of just and sustainable economy that we really want to scale up. And does it also incorporate the types of projects that Harvard might want to take on or the types of funding that Harvard would accept in the future? Uh, Because I know that Harvard has an incredible kind of consulting wing or an incredible kind of range of different centers and programs and things. And, and often they are funded by groups who, who might be the target of, of your divestment work. Yeah. Um, I mean, we try to expose those ties as much as possible. I think there's really a broader issue you're touching on here, which is that, you know, Elite universities, um, Harvard included, often buck divestment, not because they don't understand that it is morally or really at this point financially the right thing to do, but because they don't want to sever their broader relationships with the fossil fuel industry, which oftentimes is funding faculty research, is funding academic programs on campus. You know, like the Harvard Environmental Economic Programs is just one example of that. Um, Princeton has had an ongoing collaboration with ExxonMobil over low carbon research since 2015. Um, Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy has donors that include ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, ConocoPhillips, um, and more. So, you know, really like fossil fuel companies are using elite universities and these research-based funding relationships to their advantage, right? Because it it adds a form of legitimacy to fossil fuel companies' claims that they are part of the energy transition when they are not fundamentally aligning their business models with climate science, which is like, duh, because we have to stop burning fossil fuels <laughs> to align with climate science. Um, like, and yeah, so, I mean, we are calling for, for an end to those ties. It's not like our, our principal goal, really, that's like the principal obstacle, I think, to to achieving our goal. But, you know, a lot of people just don't really even realize what a big imprint fossil fuel companies have on research universities campuses. And so making it clear, making it public, making it known what the relationship between these companies and these universities are, is really, really an important part of galvanizing people to push for divestment and to push more broadly for our institutions to be vehicles for climate justice, um, which means fundamentally changing the ways that they invest and also changing who's in charge of their investments or who their investments are accountable to. Um, Because part of the reason places like Harvard are even able to get away with not divesting in the first place despite overwhelming support from their communities um, to do so is is because they don't have democratic models of governance. they, they're, you know, they intentionally structure things such that the students, faculty, alumni, workers, community members calling on them to divest, to be bold climate leaders don't have power. Um, and so that's something that has to radically change as well if we're ever going to see a place like Harvard be committed to meaningfully taking on the climate crisis. Really interesting and, and really insightful, Liana. And I, I do wish you the best of luck with that campaign, with with the kind of the the identity opportunity of being a journalist and an activist at the same time with you know all those emails you have to delete from your inbox from recruiters every day you know seeking your you know services in 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 the most economically productive manner and um and also obviously kind of you know as a as a young person in america undergoing this kind of incredible 
potential shift um, of which I hope is as dramatic as you kind of hope it might be. Um, thank you so much for chatting with me and, and for sharing your time with us this morning. And I hope you have a massive party this weekend um, celebrating the potential country that, that you know, it's weird. I, I mean, kind of Trump for four years said, make America great again. And, and I wonder how, you know, obviously not using those words, but how closely that is to the sentiment that you might feel kind of right now. <laughs> I don't think I can ever hear those words and say <laughs> and say something I, I feel close to. But I what I guess what I would say is, you know, go Joe, go. Like <laughs> let's get this planet back on track. Let's get this country back on track and, and let's make a real contribution to a more just and sustainable world. Yeah. And and if Pete's coffee doesn't come up with a cup of Joe like product, I, then then you know, they are missing out on the, the great opportunity of, of the next couple of years. You know, there are so many coffee shops around Washington. If someone doesn't come up, even rebrand their whole story, their whole store as a cup of Joe, then, you know, I don't know what they're doing. Cup of Joe national chain. Like you heard it here first. Someone yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, if the philosophy degree doesn't, um, you know, bring in the big bucks, then, you know, you can very quickly set up a, a roadside stand selling cup of Joe. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. All right. See you later, Liana, and thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And that's it for the show. I'm Chris Wright, and this is Climate Tracker Weekly. If you have comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at podcast at climatetracker.org. Subscribe to our newsletter and visit our website. Join us again next time for another episode of Climate Tracker Weekly. Thank you so much for sticking around, and I hope you enjoyed the chat with Liana today. <laughs>